This is Going Under, Anesthesia Answered with Dr. Brian Schmutzler. I'm Vahid Sadrzadeh. We do a Q&A with Dr. Brian Schmutzler every episode. And here in episode three, our main topic is going to be the three best and three worst things to do before surgery. I'm sure we've all done bad things before surgery. The question is, is it uh, terrible and will you cancel the surgery? There's some. There are some things. <laughs> okay. We'll get, we'll get into it. So, obviously, every uh, episode here, Brian, we try to answer the viewers' questions and the listeners' questions, and we'll have five uh, rapid-fire Q&A questions at the end of this uh, podcast. But uh, straight away, let's get into the, the main topic, the three best and three worst things you can do before surgery. Um, before you answer that question, what is the worst thing you've seen somebody do uh or the worst thing you've heard of that somebody's trying to do before surgery yeah i mean so the the one thing that will inevitably get your case canceled is if you're eating so i've seen people actually walking into the waiting room at the hospital with a mcdonald's hamburger in their hand so that's probably the worst and i guess we'll start with the three worst things because that's a good lead why why can't okay what is the eating just just go over this for the person who maybe has never had surgery before right event they're they're out there why can you not eat before surgery or drink yeah. Uh, okay. So so let's let's walk through the guidelines. Then I'll give you a little bit of, of background on it. The guidelines are that you should not have any food at all for at least eight hours before surgery. Some would say six, uh, but but the those recommendations come from a study done a long time ago on uh, people who ate two eggs, so over easy eggs and one piece of toast. That was the study, and they looked how long there was was food in the patient's stomach. So this was obviously, like, done as research. Correct, so yeah. So did people, like, they were ready for them to choke, basically, during the surgery, or, like, what? No, no, no. So it wasn't people having surgery. Yeah. So they, they oh, just okay. brought in healthy volunteers, yep. fed them the two eggs and the one piece of toast, yep. and then measured what was in their stomach over and over again at different time intervals. And I can't remember all the time intervals. I think it was an hour, two hours, Three hours, four hours, eight hours, twelve hours. They just kept yeah. going back in. The the old studies, I think they actually did a, a scope where they looked in with a <clears> scope. <throat> uh, the newer ones, they've done them since. They just do gastric, uh, an ultrasound, and so you can see what's in the stomach with gastric ultrasound. That's actually a great topic. We should talk about gastric ultrasound at some point. Just thought of that, but um, so that food sits in your stomach. Uh huh. Um, and so the guidelines are eight hours. Some would say six for any solid food. Uh, four hours for breast milk. Okay. Apparently, it, it processes more quickly than, than other food. And then two hours for clear liquids. Okay. Okay. So, so if you want to have some water, and this is, again, I'm not your physician, but uh, if you want to have some water the morning of surgery and your surgery is scheduled at 10 a.m., yeah. finish drinking that water around 6 a.m. So theoretically, like you could get up and eat super early. If your case was at like 12 or 1. Yeah, you could. Yeah. The, the problem comes in, the days don't always go perfectly. And you may show up to surgery two or three hours early, and they may say, we're ready to go right now. And then you'll have to say, well, I had something to eat four hours ago. Oh. And then they're going to say, well, never mind. We're going to have to wait. So, all right. So, so those are the guidelines, right? Okay. So why? The reason is when you go under anesthesia, you lose the ability to protect your airway. 
And like we've talked about in, in multiple answers to questions and in the podcast in the past, you, you also uh, get more nauseous, right? The, the anesthetics make you nauseous for the most part. So you've got the combination of food in your stomach, being nauseous, and inability to protect your airway. So you're, you're likely to throw up, and that then goes not out, but back in and into your lungs. So it's kind of like, I mean, I don't know if I want to equate it to this. Don't follow this. I'm not your doctor. I'm not your, you know, whatever. But, like, we see this with people who, like, pass out Correct. if they have too much alcohol, yep. right? They pass out, they're in the wrong position. And they aspirate. Yeah, it's called aspiration. So that those, those food particles, or even if it's just bile from your stomach, can go into your lungs. The lungs don't like anything in there besides air. So if that goes into your lungs... You know, it causes what's what's called the pneumonitis. So the there's inflammation, and the 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 lungs kind of try to wall that off. And in the meantime, they can't do air exchange, which is what they're there for, right? You can't get oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. So aspiration is a huge issue, probably one of the most important things in anesthesia. And so that that you know is some studies would say a 50% uh, mortality rate if you ask really? right yeah 50% yep some studies would say a 50% mortality rate what is your experience with that <laughs> so so um i've had one major aspiration in my entire career um you know, I think there's often people who aspirate a little bit and if you just aspirate a little bit of let's say stomach acid you know, you, you were appropriately, you had appropriately not eaten or, or had anything to drink and you just get a little stomach acid up and then a little bit comes back in. Usually that's not a huge issue. Um, major aspiration of food particles is the big issue. And, and so I did have one case where I had a patient who, um, they claim they didn't eat even when I saw so they, them. So they lie to you or they I'm, lie on their sheet. I'm, I'm not making any, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not making any statement of whether they lied to me or not because I spoke to that patient several days later and that patient still said they did not have anything to eat. Uh, but I was doing an, an orthopedic case with a LMA in, um, because the patient couldn't have a spinal, uh, and the LMA doesn't completely protect the airway that sits in the back of the throat. doesn't go all the way in the windpipe. And over the course of the procedure, there was some stuff coming up into the back of the throat and then eventually there were just large particles of what looked like eggs and biscuits and gravy. You can actually tell what they oh, have? Yeah. Yep, you can if, if the food particles come up for sure. Uh, so so that, that patient did aspirate, had a very significant aspiration. In fact, I called the uh, intensivist, the pulmonologist, into the room to do a bronchoscopy and go down. And that intensivist was picking out pieces. So that's what food. you have to do. Yeah, I mean, if you have a major aspiration of food particles, yeah, the only way really to prevent a major, major disaster is to have a, a pulmonologist do a bronchoscopy. Holy cow. Yeah, so that, that's the worst aspiration I've ever had. I've had multiple patients who have had, you know, small-level aspirations. You, you, can, you can tell they've got a little bit of bile yeah. coming up in the back of their throat and it goes back in, but again, usually that's not clinically significant or at least not a major issue. Biscuits and gravy. And eggs, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a heavy breakfast. And and we're uh, we're we're uh, you know maintaining HIPAA. I'm not yep. telling yeah, anything sure. that not sure. telling anything about patients' names and nothing specific about the patient. So we just want to clarify that as well. So let's now that we've gone into that. Yeah, the three best things you can do before surgery. Three best things. All right. So number one, 
uh, be honest with your anesthesiologist, anesthesia provider, surgeon, right? So tell them about your medical history. Tell them about any issues you've had in the past. Tell them about if you've had something to eat or drink. It doesn't mean necessarily your surgery is getting canceled. It might just need to get delayed a little bit. So, so that's probably number one. Uh, number two is hydrate. So I know you can't drink up to two hours before, but the day before, or even the week before, really hydrate because hydration is going to do a few things. Number one, it's going to make you feel better after surgery. Dehydration is probably one of the main reasons that you, you get nauseous after surgery. So hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Okay. Um, so, so it's going to prevent the nausea, number one. Uh, number two, it's going to be easier to get your IV. Okay. So, so we, we got to put an IV in and basically every patient that we, that we do surgery on. If you're dehydrated, even from that 8 or 12 hours where you haven't had anything to eat or drink, it's really hard to get an IV in. So if you've spent the last day or even week hydrating, much, much easier to get an IV in. And so that's a, a huge thing that the patients really worry and complain about is, is having to have multiple sticks for the IV. And then post-surgery it's better for you, right? So if you get dehydrated, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. Your kidneys can shut down. You can have heart problems. You can have potentially lung problems. So if you're hydrating beforehand, even uh -huh. if it's a minor procedure, you're less likely to have those complications afterwards. So hydration is, is you know, aside from being honest with your, your anesthesia provider or your surgeon, hydration is probably number two. Do you have something you were going to ask about no, that? Okay. No, right. I, I, you know... Uh, uh, that's, it's actually good to keep in mind. Cause I'm now I'm looking back at my surgeries yeah, and I'm thinking, okay, well maybe why did I have a headache or what, you know, yep. because I didn't drink enough water beforehand. So you just don't think about those things, right? right? You think I'm going to be in and out and it's not going to be a problem right. and it is what it is. You just don't think as a patient, right? You don't think, Hey, I can do things prior to surgery that are going to be more beneficial to me yep. post-surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what was the third thing? So, so the third thing is optimize your health, right? And this is just in general, you want to, you want to optimize your health, but if you can optimize your health, you know, you're going to have a surgery in six or eight weeks, do the best you can. So number one in optimizing your health, quit smoking. Okay. Now there's, and we can talk about this in a future podcast. There are some um, complications that can occur if you stop smoking within like a week or two of when you have surgery. We'll deal with them. They're not, they're not critical complications most often, but quitting smoking several weeks ahead of time, number one thing that you can do in terms of optimizing your health. Uh, losing weight, making sure you're on the right medications, optimizing your blood pressure, optimizing you know, your fitness as much as possible. You, you got to think surgery is a very stressful experience. Even a minor surgery is a very stressful experience on your body. So you want to treat surgery as if you're going to go you know, run a 5K or run a marathon, depending on what surgery you're having. So you want to optimize as much as you can, uh, modifiable risk factors. We've talked about this before. Optimize those as much as you can before surgery. Uh, and I'm guessing as we go into the list of the three worst things that we've already discussed. Number one. Yeah. The number one worst yeah. thing that you could do is eat before surgery. Yep. All right. And number two. Number two would be smoking. Um, okay. You know, being a smoker and smoking the day of surgery are very, very, very high risk things to do again, even for the most minor procedure. Okay. So, and the third thing. Yeah. Uh, so the third thing uh, would be not preparing yourself for how things are going to be after surgery. So what we find is that patients who are prepared 
for the pain, for the nausea, for that sort of stuff, mentally prepared, do better. Right. Okay. So some, so if somebody wakes up and they think I'm not going to have any pain after surgery, classic, classic procedure is a gallbladder procedure. Right. So we do a ton of gallbladder procedures. A lot of patients have their gallbladder taken out. Um, you know, there's certain days I've done eight or 10 of those. Okay. Um, people think, ah, it's a, it's a little procedure, not that big of a deal. It's one of the most painful procedures afterwards that, that is, that is out there. I mean, that it's those patients wake up and are really, really uncomfortable. Being prepared for that is going to make your transition post-surgical much, much easier. Okay. So, you know, having that conversation with your surgeon or anesthesiologist or whomever, hey, what, what should I expect after surgery? And if you're, having that, if you're having that conversation with your surgeon a few weeks ahead of time, it gives you time to prepare. This is what's going to happen after surgery. You're going to have an incision here. You're going to have pain here. You're going to have pain there. You're going to be nauseous. You're going to, you know, all these things. It, it's having the mindset of what may happen after surgery helps a ton. The most painful, I, I might be going off topic here, but you were just talking about uh, anesthesia, but more in general, you know, the type of procedure that you're have, uh, having and underestimating it. The most painful procedure I've ever had done is a sports hernia. Yeah. Oh, man, that, not in terms of the procedure itself, but post-procedure. Mm-hmm. Like, it is in the, you know, it's in right. Groin, yeah. yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. like, but it's, Every movement yep. is pretty much based on moving your torso like that. Yeah. And it was so painful. I wish like somebody would have told me, hey, like yep. just prepare yourself for post-surgery because it is not going to be a pleasant experience. And that's a great question to ask your surgeon. You walk in the office, you say, hey, I need a sports hernia done. Tell me about your, your patient's experience after surgery. You know, what's the pain like? What's the nausea like? What's the recovery time? How long until I can, you know, lift weights or run, you know, on a treadmill or whatever? I mean, it just, just having that conversation, I think, probably helps. I've never had a sports hernia, but I have heard that before, mm-hmm. that they're, they're quite, quite intense. This is Going Under, Anesthesia Answered with Dr. Brian Schmutzler. Of course, uh, we do a Q&A rapid fire at the end of every podcast. And we've reached that now. We've talked about the three best things to do before surgery and the three worst things to do before surgery. Do not eat anything. Biscuits, gravy, whatever. They don't want to see it. Nope. Do we mention don't eat before surgery? Don't eat before surgery. Yeah, we've mentioned that. Uh, Now it's time to get to your rapid-fire questions. Of course, if you follow him on social media, he's on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. He's going to be taking over the world soon. So, um Maybe running for public office. I no, don't know. No. I, uh, w- my wife told me that she would no longer be my wife if I ran for public office. So I will yeah. not be running. I will. I'm officially announcing I will never run for public office. Didn't a certain politician say the same thing like ten years ago? Or I mean it. I mean it. So. Okay. All right. Well, we'll believe you. Uh, but you will answer these rapid fire questions. I will. That uh, this is again from you, the viewer, the listener out there. Uh, here's the first question today. Is twilight sedation ever used in a hospital setting? This person said, I only ever heard of it for plastic surgery. Yeah, so it depends what you mean by twilight sedation. I'm just going to assume you mean basically a MAC. Um, a, a, and we'll, we'll, we'll do an episode on all the different types of, of anesthesia. So essentially what a MAC is, is we, we don't put the patient's 
so asleep that they can't breathe and we have to put an airway in. That's essentially how I describe it to patients. So you're, you're asleep, you don't know what's going on, you're not feeling really anything, um, and you're not going to remember anything, but you don't have a tube in to breathe for you. Okay, so that's what we call monitored anesthesia care or a MAC. We use twilight sedation for all kinds of stuff. I mean, it, you know, if you look at, we'll, we'll do several procedures where we do spinal blocks and use that quote-unquote twilight sedation with it. Uh, we do um, colonoscopies with twilight sedation. Uh, we do our cataracts with sedation. I wouldn't probably call that quite the same. That's more sort of a moderate sedation where we give a, we don't, we don't give propofol. We give a medicine that just makes people not care and not remember uh, you know, we'll, we'll use that type of sedation for basically anybody that has a block where sure. really we just need them asleep enough that they're not noticing what's going on and not so much that we actually need it for the anesthetic. A lot of times we'll do um, AV fistulas for people who need dialysis. We'll do that with a block and twilight sedation. So we use that a lot. And, and, and honestly, with the advent of regional anesthesia, it's a lot more common to use a, a MAC combined with a regional anesthetic. I've been following along in your social media channels, and, and I know this is a question you get a lot, and patients have this question a lot. Why can't patients remember waking up in the surgery room uh, instead of recovery? So, like, if you wake up in there, why can't you remember? Yeah, you know, it sort of depends on the anesthetic. We don't often wake people completely up in the operating room. That's for a number of reasons. Uh, one, most of our anesthetics take a while to wear off. So while you may not... You may be breathing on your own. You may not have an endotracheal tube in or an LMA in. You're not fully awake in the operating room. And we're not pushing to get you awake, right? As long as you're safe, your vital signs are okay, and you're breathing on your own, I'm, I, don't, I don't necessarily care if you're awake and cognizant. I care more that you're safe. Um, you know, number two, depending on the anesthetic, we may actually take you from the operating room to the recovery room still essentially asleep. Now, we as anesthesia providers, we don't leave your side until you're you're awake uh, and, and maintaining your airway and, and um, you know, doing well enough vitals sign-wise that we don't need to monitor you as, as closely as an anesthesia provider. But, uh, you know, I, I don't mind if you wake up in the recovery room as opposed to the operating room. Um, so I'm, those are probably the two reasons that people think that they wake up in the recovery room. The other, the other thing is even if you are waking up and totally awake in the operating room, there's still those anesthetics hanging around. So you just don't remember waking up in the operating room. Usually people remember waking up in recovery. The next question has to do with artery lines versus vein IVs. So if you can explain what each is, this question says, when are artery lines used versus vein IVs and why do they hurt so much? Huh. So, so that's, that's interesting. I wonder if this person is, is in, in medicine or healthcare. Uh, so we use arterial lines and IVs or venous lines for completely different reasons. Um, we inject things into venous lines. We take things out of arterial lines, or we measure uh, blood pressure via arterial lines. So totally, totally different things. Everybody gets an IV, well, I mean, unless they're just having oral sedation, but almost everybody gets an intravenous line, an IV line. That's where we give our medications, we give our fluids, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's, a, that's a very, very common thing. Almost every patient gets that. An arterial line is for patients who are either having higher risk procedures or, or, 
or our sicker patients. So there's a few reasons we'll put an arterial line in. Probably the main reason we put one in is to measure blood pressure in real time. So I can put an arterial line in and I can measure your blood pressure as it happens instead of doing a blood pressure cuff, which only takes every three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. Um, then we can also pull off blood from there and that'll give us the ability to do labs in real time as well. Um, why do they hurt so much more? Well, typically they're larger and typically they're deeper. Uh-huh. Uh, and for some reason, it seems like the arteries are a little bit more sensitive to being poked than the veins. So it's not pleasant to get an IV, but once they take that IV out, you get a little bruise and you don't really notice much. The arterial uh, pokes, you know, whether it's, you know, an, uh, a radial arterial line or a femoral arterial line, people tend to have just more issues with that. There's a little bit more inflammation involved and just more pain. Uh, the last question is actually from me because I kind of thought about it on the fly here. Um, and it has to do with the conversation and communication between physicians. Mm -hmm. How much of that goes on prior to surgery between you and the person who's doing the surgery? And what do you talk about? Um, and I guess, does that have anything to do with, you know, I know that everybody comes in and asks the same question. Sure. How old are you? What are you getting done today? You know, is this the, but, but how much communication goes on behind the scenes between you and the actual, uh, another, phys- yeah. yeah, procedurals. Yeah. So, so we talk quite a bit. Um, you know, I spend most of my time at one place. Uh, so for me, I know exactly what those physicians want, right? I've worked with most of those guys for 10 plus years. So I I know what they want. I know when a patient comes in that they want a spinal and a nerve block and a sedation, right? I I know that about what they want, but we do communicate, Hey, this is a little out of the ordinary. Hey, I've got this patient who uh, I need to do a special procedure on. What do you think about that? And so there's quite a bit of communication. Um, you know, almost every one of them, I have their cell phone number. We text. Uh, we'll talk during, you know, if I'm in a procedure and the next procedure is the one where the patient has something funny going on or the procedure is going to be a little bit different than normal. We have that conversation. So it, there, there's a lot of open communication. Is there ever a disagreement? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely disagreements. Um, You know, sometimes surgeons will say, you know, I want you to do this type of anesthetic. And I'll say no, because (laughs) either it's not safe or it's not going to work. Usually, you know, again, I've been in the same city and practicing with the same surgeons for uh-huh. multiple years usually they'll say okay well i trust they you. just trust your right doctor. right right um we do probably the most contentious disagreements we have is whether this patient is safe to do or not okay um and so you know there's some give and take there um i i would say in general that i'm i'm pretty liberal when it comes to what cases i'll do um you know i'm pretty comfortable taking care of sicker patients uh, but, you know, there are some times where it's absolutely inappropriate to do a procedure. And if if it comes down to the safety of the patient, I'm going to tell the surgeon, we're not doing this procedure today. Let's put a bow on the three best and the three <laughs> worst that you've ever done. How many cases do you think, just give me a ballpark, Yeah. do you think you have had to cancel because of one of those three worst things. Yeah. three things in your career? Um. I probably cancel three to four a month because people ate. Three to four a month. Yeah, I would guess across across all the different um, 
all the different procedures we do, probably probably three to four a month because patients show up and have have eaten or are eating when they show up. And are they charged for that uh, partial time? Or uh, the- probably not. Okay, uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't imagine they would be. Most of the time, we catch it the second they walk into the pre-op area. See you later. Um, <clears throat> are they surprised? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. They, I don't think patients understand. Okay, um, why they and that's that's part of what we're trying yeah, to do right. here is explain that to them. Uh, I don't think patients understand why they can't eat before surgery and that it's a that's a true safety issue. Um, you know, uh, blood pressure is probably the second most common reason we cancel procedures. Patients who have super high blood pressures puts them at risk during surgery because, as we talked about, blood pressure goes down during surgery. So sure. if your brain is used to 220 over 110, and I drop your blood pressure to 130, chance for a stroke. So that that's probably the second most reason, most common reason that we cancel cases is elevated blood pressures. Um, and then sometimes we'll have to cancel because patients either took or didn't take medications they were supposed to take or supposed to not take. But that's that's probably more rare. Listen, take it from this guy. A double Big Mac can wait until after yeah, the surgery. Yes, it it's can. much better after the surgery too on the way home. Or just or just make sure you eat it like twelve hours before <laughs> surgery. That's either way before or after. It's a good snack afterwards. Yeah, it it is. It consult with your physician. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Yeah. Brian Schmutzler. Again, this is uh, uh, very informative and you know, it's it's providing education for those folks who really don't know or want a better understanding. So we appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. This is Going Under Anesthesia Answered with Dr. Brian Schmutzler. You can follow him on all social media platforms, YouTube, and, of course, on his website at www.drbrianschmutzler.com. We'll see you in the next one.